Hello, this is the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. Today, this is episode 11, and we're going to be talking about New Polities, uh, Jacob Imam, and Mark Barnes, and their relationship to the Christian tradition. And so part of this is going to be um, some criticism of their work. And I, I typically prefer to criticize ideas rather than people, but there, the, there comes a point when, uh, you know, the way that they're presenting the Christian tradition has become so problematic that really I kind of want to lay out my thinking of why it's hard for me to the, take them seriously anymore when they start talking about the Christian tradition or, or reference even papal documents or, or Aquinas and so forth. And really, as I've, I've talked about before, um, you know, part of this is coming out of, you know, reading more of their work and reading and listening to what they've been talking about. And the more and more I've dug into it, the more and more problematic it's become. Um, at first, I thought there was just a difference in interpretation, but at this point, it really has become an issue of, uh, at times, contradicting what authors or the magisterium has said. Uh, in a previous episode, I kind of mentioned the problem of intrinsic evils, and uh, on an episode that Jacob was on, he talked about how uh, we can do an intrinsic evil uh, when there is some sort of disorder involved. And so there, there's a lot of ambiguity there, but it seems to be in direct contradiction to not only reason, but what Veritatis Splendor says. And so more and more as I've dug into this, it, it's become more and more problematic. And so I kind of wanted to just talk about uh, what I find problematic uh, you know, bring that up. And these are things that I not only have been noticing, but I've seen other people mentioning as well. Like if you go onto the New Polity website in the shareholding essay that they posted on their blog, several, maybe not several, a couple of people have pointed out similar issues with how they're taking uh, things out of context, how they're misinterpreting documents and and so forth. So I just kind of want to lay it out um, why um, I don't think they should be taken as um, authentic uh, expounders of the, the Christian tradition and why we should be maybe a little bit skeptical about uh, what they're saying. And of course, you know, caveats that Maybe they can clarify some of this. Maybe they can explain why they they understand things a particular way. Um, in my last uh, essay that I submitted to New Polity that they published, I was very much hoping that they would clarify uh, some of the reasons why they were reading things a particular way. Unfortunately, in a lot of instances, they didn't. But we'll we'll talk about a couple of things in their their new essay as well. So the first thing that um, I kind of wanted to bring up was that because of this issue, I I really wanted to try to understand 
where uh, particularly Jacob was coming from, because he's the one who's been saying a lot of these things. And so I found his uh, dissertation online uh, at the Oxford website, and so I'll link that below, and you can check it out too. And I started reading it, and uh, in the first chapter, you know, he begins to talk about how the Church Fathers have a very negative perspective on money, which I think is a little unbalanced given what I've read, because they also have... Uh, positive views towards money, but the thing that really caught my attention was where Jacob claims that the Council of Vienna actually declares that money is evil or has the appearance of evil, which is uh, surprising, but it's also not true. I mean, if you, you can go and look up and read the canon that he cites, and there's no plausible way that that is declaring that money is evil or has the appearance of evil. It's talking about Franciscans and how um, they should not be involved in in royal courts or they should not have a lot of possessions. And it seems like that's what it's really talking about, is that given the way that the Franciscans are set up and what they're supposed to represent as mendicants, they shouldn't be involved in these other things because you might get the idea that, oh, well, they're just pretending to be uh, poor and so taking advantage of that. So it, it certainly does not seem to be declaring that money uh, is evil or has the appearance of evil. And so it's, it's, it's strange to say the least that he read that into that particular canon and go read the canon, tell me if I'm wrong, because it doesn't, I don't know how he gets that out of the canon. And unfortunately, um, yeah. So um, one of the next things was uh, recently uh, in a podcast with uh, Gospel Simplicity, uh, Jacob talked about insurance, and he claimed that insurance was a structure of sin. Uh, and I've been trying to understand better what the structures of sin are, and it has to do with this notion of social sin that's built up over time. Uh, and the the specific examples that I've seen have been uh, like apartheid in Southern Africa or the really oppressive regimes in uh, Eastern Europe uh, during the Soviet era. And so... Uh, you know, the way that John Paul seems to be talking about this it is in that sense, that these are very oppressive institutions that uh, really hinder uh, uh, human development. And so he seems to be focusing specifically on these type of things, these oppressive regimes or, you know, very explicit racism. And so... But it seems that the way that Jacob keeps interpreting this or understands this is as anything that hinders in any way whatsoever uh, the development, uh, human development or integral human development. And particularly, he focuses on the development of these relationships. And so insurance is a particular example of a structure of sin because it hinders the development of relationships where we rely on our friends 
to take care of us uh, in distress, and rather we're relying on, on a company. Now, the issue I have with um, with this is that um, the the popes have been very explicit in their approval of insurance, and here here I'll make the distinction because. Uh, Jacob seems to approve of, of insurance, um, like maybe local insurance or very personal insurance. I think he mentioned uh, Samaritan Purse as a particular example, where there, there's a very close connection between uh, who, you know, the person who needs the money and the person who's paying out the money or the institution that's paying out the money. And so it's, it's, it's much more localized. It's much more, um, smaller and self-contained and, and community based. Whereas the popes really have been approving of really commercial insurance. So these larger institutions that are providing, uh, you know, financial security to people. And so uh, on Twitter, I posted uh, a list of six or seven different citations from recent um, from recent popes, uh, John the twenty third onwards, talking about the importance of insurance. John Paul calls health insurance uh, a worker's right. For example, um, Benedict the sixteenth in a homily. Uh, says that our widely developed insurance system is a positive thing. It's a good thing. And he's talking about this in respect to, to the death of someone. And so, uh, you know, life insurance there. And so it seems that um, either the popes are advocating for structures of sin and the growth and development of structures of sin, or uh, Jacob is wrong about... Um, insurance being a structure of sin. And also I would go even farther to suggest that maybe he's wrong about what structures of sin actually means um, and that he's applying it too broadly. So, uh, and I think that second, um, that second option is far more likely given the authority of the popes. And some of this has been said in encyclicals. So it, it requires a little bit more assent than uh, what we owe Jacob and Mark. So, um, yeah, and then, so so those are kind of some of the, the, the things that I've been seeing. Um, now, getting to the essays that I wanted to discuss. So one of the things that I was really hoping that they would talk about more is the way in which their theory of profit is actually supported by the tradition. So Jacob and Mark proposed this theory of profit from which they criticize um, shareholders and stock traders, where um, you either need to work for the increase in your wealth or expand um, the work of others uh, in some sort of dignifying labor. And so uh, they cited several sources for um, support and saying the, the tradition supports this position. And they cited uh, Pseudo Chrysostom, who is actually Arian heretic, as I pointed out, uh, and shouldn't be considered an authority. They cited Gratian, who merely uh, uh, cites Pseudo Chrysostom, but because of that, his 
that citation makes it into canon law. But then he cites Alexander of Hales, uh, another Franciscan, and of course they, they talk about St. Thomas Aquinas. And so I pointed out that uh, on the Franciscan side of the tradition, that really the focus has been on the need for labor um, or risk or care. And so, uh, for example, Alexander of Hales in his Summa uh, suggests that, uh, you know, the, the risk of your warehouse burning down is sufficient for justifying some sort of profit. Uh, Duns Scotus even talks about how um, merely being an importer and putting your goods up for sale supports the common good and so justifies a profit. And in fact, I've been reading uh, this book lately, uh, the, if you can see that, The Merchant in the Confessional. And one of the interesting things about this book is it, it goes through the penitential uh, tradition uh, in the early Middle Ages, so the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, and uh, really looking at how uh, penitential handbooks were, were developed and how they addressed trade and price and just price. And um, so that it really focuses on, well, what are mortal sins? How, do, how does the confessor kind of, what should they be concerned about and how do they draw that out of the merchant, uh, what they've done, and then what are the penances that they should associated with that. And the, the, the position that Mark and Jacob take, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, reading, you know, about half of this book, is that that early tradition, um, I think outside of Italian, because I haven't gotten to the Italian section yet, that early tradition in the 13th and 14th century, uh, the, the view that profit was justified by labor alone is, is very marginal in this tradition. Um, the, there are a couple of people who say, following John Chrysostom, or pseudo Chrysostom, that if you don't improve the thing, then you can't profit from it. Um, but the main focus is on things like you know, fraud, uh, not revealing defects in the product, uh, falsifying measures and weights, um, some, some of those things, or going over the just price. So a lot of those things. But um, really, um, part of the focus on labor was trying to create this analogy between an artisan and a merchant. And so an artisan's profit is justified because he improves the thing and he adds some labor. But really, in this tradition, it seems that, you know, even just putting your goods up for sale is considered sufficient labor uh, because it's good for the community and so forth. And um, in, in the Thomistic tradition, Thomas, I argue, focuses on intention and how, um, you know, the pro... Trading is of its nature for profit itself, but that doesn't prevent adding some sort of good and virtuous end to the trading, such as the care of your family, uh, the needs of the poor, uh, the good of your community, and that's talked about in this this penitential tradition as well. So um, 
But even just that, the risk and care aspects coming out of Alexander of Hales, I don't understand how they are reading the tradition in such a way that um, it requires labor in order to receive, to justify um, justify some profit. And even more importantly, what do they even mean by labor? That was, that was a fundamental argument that I, I posed to Jacob and Mark that they didn't respond to. Uh, in fact, I said that was the fundamental question. So, um, you know, how, how are Jacob and Mark reading this? Because the way they presented it is um, really disconnected from what the tradition actually says. In fact, that second condition, expanding labor, that that doesn't appear anywhere in any of the sources they cited uh, because none of those authors talk about expanding labor. They're all talking about merchants and traders. So, the, you know, there's another one where uh, it's really confusing exactly how they're, they're reading these documents and how they're interpreting it and because it seems like the documents themselves contradict what they're they're claiming. The next thing that I, I wanted to bring up comes up in their their new article, and I got a paper copy of this because this one has my essay in it. And so this this essay uh, responds to my my first essay, and I have a second essay that I I've submitted to them in response to this because I feel like there's a lot of problems with this, um, and so. The one here that I wanted to bring up was uh, talking about voting rights, uh, and Jacob and Mark proposed this argument against um, against voting rights because you're not held uh, legally responsible if you don't vote. And so they, they make this argument, though, and um, what they say is, quote, the Christian tradition wouldn't bat an eye if a lawful authority were to confiscate and redistribute a parcel of productive property that was only technically owned, but was in fact being hoarded and wasted. As Pope St. John Paul II said, ownership of the means, uh, ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. Just so, Humphreys should not flinch to recommend that share, share ownership be continued on the use of voting, voting rights and that whatever these rights are not used, a lawful authority should confiscate the offending uh, shareholders' shares, cash them out, and redistribute their value as cash payments to the religious orders, say. So, um, so this is essentially advocating for uh, taking an owner's property and selling it off because uh, they're not using it, and especially uh, the means of production. And so, um, and they invoke the whole Christian tradition, and they only reference uh, St. John Paul here. And this, this passage is actually controversial between the two of us, but it also seems to be controversial in the literature, because it seems that um, what they think John Paul is suggesting here, uh, people have have questioned whether he is actually suggesting that the ownership is lost or not. So this is controversial even in the broader literature from what I've seen. But um, it becomes even more problematic 
um, when we actually look at the Christian tradition, because obviously the Christian tradition did not start with an amb ambiguous statement from St. John Paul. Um, and so actually in social Catholic doctrine, um, in Quadresimo uh, uh, Anno, uh, Pope Pius XI has something to say about this, and so he is also invoking the Christian tradition. Um, so, uh, in uh, paragraph 47, in order to place definite limits on the controversies that have arisen over, in, over ownership and its inherent duties, there must be first laid down a foundation, a principle established by Leo XIII. So this is a Christian tradition going back to at least the 19th century. The right of property is distinct from its use. That justice called communitative commands sacred respect for the division of possessions and forbids invasion of others' rights through the exceeding of the limits of one's own property. But the duty of owners to use their property only in a right way does not come under this type of justice but under other virtues, obligations of which cannot be enforced by legal action. And here he quotes Rerum Navarum. Therefore, they are in error who assert that ownership and its right use are limited by the same boundaries, and it is much farther still from the truth to hold that a right to property is destroyed or lost by reason of abuse or non-use. So it seems there that Pius XI uh, is really contradicting what um, Jacob and Mark are claiming with respect to um, the Christian tradition saying that the state can lawfully confiscate productive property and redistribute it uh, because, because it's being hoarded. And, and what Pius VII or Pius XI is saying is, no, that is not. That ownership is not lost or destroyed. And so the state taking that productive property would be a violation of their ownership, and thus it would be theft. And so the, the position that they're taking is in contradiction to the Christian tradition, as clearly laid out by Pius XI. And so, essentially, they're advocating for theft. Um, and so, this is very problematic. And so, ultimately, what this comes down to is, well, um, the the only support they have for this is, is St. John Paul. Um and really an ambiguous statement, which is controversial between the two of us and in the broader literature. And so how do we interpret St. John Paul? If we interpret him in light of the Christian tradition laid out by Pius XI and um, Leo XIII, then we have to understand that ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. He's talking about the use of the means of production and that this use has no uh, justification, and this use is mortally sinful, or gravely sinful in the least. And so this makes sense even within the context of this passage, because uh, John Paul is actually talking about the use of the means of production 
in ways that either hinder or prevent laborers from actually using those those means. So, um, so yeah, again, it seems they're invoking the Christian tradition, but contradicted by it. Now, there's another passage um, near the end <clears throat> uh, where they, they quote Pope Benedict in, in Caritas in Veritate, um, and I think we're running a little long, so I'll try to keep this short. Um, and so uh, Benedict is talking about the rise of new forms of ownership, especially with shareholding and uh, corporate enterprises. And one of his concerns is, is outsourcing. So uh, this isn't the full quote they gave, but it's, it's kind of the central part. So moreover, uh, the so-called outsourcing of production can weaken the company's sense of responsibility toward the stakeholders, namely the workers, the suppliers, the consumers, the natural environment, and broader society in favor of shareholders who are not tied to a specific geographical area and who therefore enjoy uh, extraordinary mobility. So that's that's kind of the central part of uh, Benedict's uh, passage. So then they go on to say, Notice that for Benedict, stakeholders of a company form a complete world, a world of producers and purchasers, society, and even nature. It is a real world full of people and things that are bound up with the company's success and responsible action, and the shareholders are not in it. Shareholders are not bound to the normal dictates of reality. They operate outside it. Their concern is more money. And so, um, as I have habitually learned, um, Mark and Jacob have a, have a habit of taking uh, passages out of context or misinterpreting them or, uh, you know, all sorts of other problems. So what did I do? I went and I actually read that passage, the full passage, um, in uh, Caritas in Veritate. And so what it seems like Jacob and Mark are trying to do here is they're trying to suggest that Benedict is trying to pose, well, what really matters are the stakeholders, and the shareholders are just kind of this appendage that is unnecessary and probably should be removed. Uh, Jacob actually talked about this in some other podcast, which I don't recall uh, off the top of my head, where he, oh, it was the Meaning of Catholic uh, podcast, where he was suggesting uh, this passage actually supports the idea of um uh, stakeholders instead of shareholders. And so um, the context of this passage is that um, Benedict is concerned about the way in which modern business is concerned exclusively with investors and shareholders rather than all the other stakeholders. So that's the context. And outsourcing is a particular example of this. And it's a particular concern to him because um, it, it harms the local economy. It harms those people whose business is being taken away for the sake of stakeholders. Now, 
Um, so they, um, so they stop this passage, um, about, you know, halfway through this paragraph. So it goes on to say, um, today's international capital markets offer great freedom of action, yet there is also increasing awareness of the need for greater social responsibility on the part of business even if ethical considerations that currently inform debate on the social responsibility of the corporate world are not all acceptable from the perspective of the church's social doctrine, there is nevertheless a growing conviction that business management cannot concern itself with the interests of the proprietors, but must also assume responsibility for all the other stakeholders who contribute to the life of the business. And so this this just sort of blows their idea out of the water. First of all, it contradicts their notion that shareholders are not actual owners. Benedict sees shareholders um, as the proprietors, the owners. And so, but also in addition, he says managers need to be concerned not only with the other stakeholders, but the proprietors, the owners, the shareholders. Um, So it's not that, oh, we need to move towards stakeholders only. It's, no, he's saying, no, we need to move towards stakeholders and shareholders. It needs to be complete. So there is no sense in which Uh, Benedict is trying to say, oh, well, the stakeholders, that's a complete world without the shareholders. No, he's saying this, these together are a are a, a complete world because the owners of the business are stakeholders because they're the ones who own, who own the business. So this sort of perspective that, um, you know, the shareholders or the stakeholders, uh, who are not shareholders, form a complete world is just nonsense. It's it's literally contradicted by Benedict uh, only two or three sentences after this. And, and so, um, you know, again, we see um, Jacob and Mark taking these passages out of context and taking them in, in a radically different directions than was actually meant in the documents. Um, and the Christian tradition. So, um, you know, again, uh, maybe uh, Mark and Jacob can um, clarify some of this. Maybe they could explain, like, maybe that's just rhetorical, um, rhetorical way of emphasizing this need to focus on the stakeholders. Um, and not that he, that they're trying to split the two, uh, and trying to be in line with, with Benedict. Um, but hopefully, hopefully they do. And, and maybe I'm just, you know, uh, mistaken, but, but hopefully, hopefully they will address these things because, uh, it really, dis- I, in my opinion, it really weakens their credibility as, um, people talking about Catholic social teaching. And so, um, 
part of that is I want to start talking about it more and focusing on what the the church is actually saying rather than taking things out of context. And so I think this is, I'm going to try to make this one of my last kind of critical, because I've, I've had a lot of critical podcasts, especially against New Polity. Um, and, you know, I'm not against necessarily a lot of the stuff that goes on at New Polity, because there's a, there's a lot of authors besides Mark and Jacob. It's just Mark and Jacob are talking about the things I'm interested in. And so that's why I've been focusing on them. But uh, in the future, I hope to be doing some some videos where uh, I present some of my own sort of positive vision of things, um, maybe in distinction to what Jacob and Mark have been proposing. But um, yeah, so th that's th those are the reasons why uh, I think I'm skeptical of most of what uh, Jacob and Mark are saying when they invoke the Christian tradition, and especially in ways that seem uh, contrary to what the Christian tradition has actually been saying, and uh, you know maybe why you should be as well. Um, you know everyone is responsible for their own due diligence, so um, you know consider that um, yourself. So, but thank you uh, for listening. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, have a good day.